Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone is having a wonderful Tuesday and a great start to the week. I'm just going to get right into it. There is a lot of stuff to cover on the podcast today. There is a huge, huge Star Wars sample size that we got today, courtesy of Vanity Fair, that really kind of lays down what we're going to be getting in the next couple of years within a galaxy far, far away. I'm also going to be getting into some MCU news regarding one of the Disney Plus shows coming out in what's set in 2023 from a certain character that appeared in one of the shows last year. I'm also going to be getting into the announcement of the 95th Annual Academy Awards that will be set for some time next year. I'm also going to be getting into the initial reactions coming out of the first episode of Stranger Things Season 4 Part 1 and a whole lot more. But before I get into any of that at all. I do want to talk about first my box office recap from this prior weekend, which since I didn't have a podcast yesterday, I wanted to talk about it a little bit today and just kind of quickly go over some of the things that happened over the weekend as this was the second weekend for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So there were a lot of questions going into the past weekend about what the potential drop-off of this film could be. It made $187 million, over $470 million worldwide at the box office two weeks ago or opening weekend when it came out on May 6th. So the big question is, is it going to be a big drop-off? Is the word of mouth, which was already kind of at a B-plus cinema score, one of the lower ones for the MCU, was that going to have a big effect on the next couple of weeks in terms of the legs and the longevity of what this film is able to do? And for the most part, for this next Doctor Strange film, it did have a big drop-off of around 67%, but it wasn't a huge surprise in terms of the drop-off. It was pretty consistent in what we've seen from MCU films in terms of the big drop-off from opening weekend to the subsequent weekends ahead. So Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness once again did come in as the number one champion this weekend. It grossed $61 million at the box office. And now when we look at the total for the film, it now has $292 million domestically, internationally has $397 million. And just recently as today, it was announced that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness has surpassed $700 million worldwide at the box office. And when we're looking at the the drop-off and the percentage for this film, is the drop-off big? Yes, and I always say anything bigger than 50% is a huge drop-off. It is a, uh, it's not what you wanna see. If it's less than 50%, that means that word of mouth is good. People are still going to see the film and the drop-off is less significant. So the longer the legs longevity for a film can be. But again, for certain blockbusters, really for a lot of blockbuster films, franchise movies, the drop-off from week from week one to week two is significant because in opening weekend, you have all the fans that want to go see the film. They don't want to be spoiled by the film. They've been looking forward to seeing what the what's going to happen. They don't again don't want to be spoiled. They want to get all the reveals and the excitement. It, it's it's opening weekend. People are excited about that. And then of course it dies down a little bit, and it's all about the repeat viewings. If you enjoy the movie, how many more times do you want to go see it? Word of mouth. So, it, but when it comes to some of these Marvel films, the drop off is pretty significant. However, when it comes to some of the bigger opening weekends. 
Ends, like Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man No Way Home, the Avengers movies, Captain America Civil War, Black Panther. When, you, when you're making over $200 million at the box office, your the drop-off when it's around 60 is still a little over $100 million at the box office. And so with a $61 million gross, while it is pretty significant, it's not the end-all be-all for this movie. Because when you look at some of the recent Phase 4 films that come out, Eternals dropped off at around 61%. No Way Home, which again had a $260 million opening weekend, was at 68%. However, you do need to take into account that it it was over the Christmas weekend and, you know, people aren't really kind of going out to the theaters at that point. But still, when you're coming off a $260 million opening domestically, you're still at around 68% grossing over or around $100 million at the box office. And then Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings grossed and had a percentage drop of 52%. So, uh, again, and it's it's not all that surprising when we look at the the percentages of this movie it's pretty consistent with it but again it's because of the word of mouth it's because of the cinema score that when we look at Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness a lot of people are wondering well is this a, a success or is it going to be a, a failure and I think as a Doctor Strange movie it's a huge success because this film has already eclipsed the, the gross of the worldwide domestic total that the first Doctor Strange did in 2016 and it already surpassed the $232 million that the first Doctor Strange did with Multiverse of Madness making $292 million here in the United States. So on that basis alone, there's it, it, you already it's, it's a win already for Marvel. It's already a win for Disney because they're, they're getting a jump on the sequel. People that enjoyed maybe the first Doctor Strange film enjoyed his appearances in other MCU films after his origin story have enjoyed the character and they wanted to go see his next film and are, and are keeping up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, again, is this film a going to make a billion dollars? I think the numbers indicate that it's going to be a little bit tougher, especially with competition coming in the next couple weeks this upcoming weekend where you only have Down, Downton Abbey, the sequel A New Era, and the new Alexander Garland film Men coming out. There isn't a big blockbuster to contend with it. The following weekend though when you have films like Top Gun Maverick, the, even the Bob's Burgers movie which has a big following with the animated show, and then a couple weekends after with Jurassic World Dominion, this film is going to face stiffer, stiffer competition because there's going to be demographics from that film that are going to be pulled over to the newer releases. So it had this nice three-week gap to really kind of get its money. So I, I think it's it's going to be interesting to see what it can corral this upcoming weekend. But I don't. It's going to be close to see if it hits a billion. I, I I wouldn't be shocked, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't hit that billion-dollar mark either way. I think it could it could get to that mark. It's going to be very close. It could get to a billion, but I could see making just shy under there at around 900 or so million dollars in the worldwide box office. But again, I think we look at this in, in the overall context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we look at the track record of some of these films over the last year or so, has, it, was this a good weekend for the for the MCU? And I think overall, yes, it was. And I think this has been a good run for it so far. Again, when you take into account the pandemic, Black Widow being a theatrical day and date release, Eternals not kind of getting the same love as some of the other MCU films, probably arguably the most divisive film within the, the universe so far. And then you look at Shang-Chi, still within the kind of the pandemic, did made over $400 million, which for a first film in Marvel is good. I think it kind of showcased is again that 
I think that the MCU is 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 going to have a very good run financially. It shows that these films are still very popular. They are still very much a big breadwinner for the theaters, especially right now when they're trying to come out of the pandemic and into a, a full on recovery process. These films are still important, and they're going to draw audiences to the theaters no matter what. It's just about is the film good enough to to sustain that over a long period of time. And then when you want to kind of get into the rewatchability of it, do these films mark that as that you want to go see it multiple times? They're, they reward you for that. That's an argument that, that can be had and, and, and is understandable in that some of these films have been okay. Some of them have been great. Some of them have been very much d- divisive. I know Multiverse of Man as long as Eternals are probably some of the more divisive ones. And you have the great crowd pleasers like Spider-Man No Way Home, like Shang-Chi. And then you have the middling ones where they're fine, they're okay, but you're not going to go back and watch it instantly in the pantheon of this universe, like in Black Widow. But I, I, it's definitely been an up and down roller coaster for at least a the theatrical slate of Phase 4 so far and even in the overall slate when you take into the TV shows as well again I think when we have when you have something like Thor Love and Thunder coming up I think that will help ease some of the pain I think in terms of popularity with those characters especially with Taika Waititi coming back to do Thor Love and Thunder people have been very responsive in the first teaser trailer that came out I think people are very excited of what that next adventure is going to be and then same thing is going to be with Black Panther Wakanda Forever that I think is going to be a big hit for them as well so I I think that even if this film doesn't do gangbusters, I think the next two films are going to prove that very much these these characters are big, this world is still big, and people enjoy these films, and that if people and audiences love them all around, I think people will watch these movies over and over again, and they will have success at the overall box office. So, again, for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, not a a horrible weekend, not a great weekend, but in the middle, and and did a, a really nice, somewhat good hold for what an MC movie typically does from a first to second weekend drop. Then when we look at the rest of the box office coming in at number two this weekend, staying at the number two spot was the bad guys from Universal Studios and that made around $70 million at the box office this weekend and now has $66.4 million domestically, $99 million internationally for a worldwide total of $165 million. Then coming in at number three is Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which grossed an additional $4.6 million at the box office. It now has $175 million domestically, $179 million internationally for a worldwide total of $355 million. So for Sonic the Hedgehog 2, this is, again, a great look for the sequel and the fact that it's one of the first ones to kind of have a film that came out a little before the pandemic and then in just two years had a sequel come out while the pandemic was still going on. So again, it showcases that people really love this movie. It grossed a little bit more than the first film did. Again, $355 million for the sequel. For the original, it came in around $319 million. Same thing domestically where it came in around 138 to 140. And then domestically for the sequel, it had 175. So these characters are still very popular. It makes a lot of sense why Paramount and Paramount Pictures and Vi- and, and, and what Paramount Global wants to do and turning this into a franchise and doing a spinoff of the Knuckles character, making a sequel. The money's there, and this is definitely the biggest success in the video game genre right now in terms of spawning off an entire franchise of characters from this world from an adaptation of a video game. So Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is a real winner so far for 
2022 and also for Paramount Pictures, which if you include everything that potentially is about to happen next weekend for Top Gun Maverick, which Paramount Pictures produced and is distributing out, they're the studio that's having a hell of a 2022, at least in the first half of the year so far between Scream, between The Lost City, between Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and now with Top Gun Maverick, just based off of the reception that the film is getting, what a way for the studio to kind of come out hinging their bets and holding on to some of these big franchise films that even though they sold off some films to streaming, not big blockbusters, but the ones that they held on to, they made sure that these are theatrical films, they need to be seen in theaters, and they're holding to that, and they're seeing the results for that so far. However, the same thing can't be said for Universal, that even though they have a successful animated film right now in The Bad Guys, when it comes to the summer movie slate, not off to the best start, especially with their new adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Firestarter, which came in at $3.8 million at the box office. That's the same that it made domestically, internationally, made an additional $2 million for a worldwide total of $5.8 million. Now, when we talk about horror films, we always think about Blumhouse Studio. And Blumhouse it has been the king of low-budget horror movies. And when it comes to those, they either hit really high or they hit extremely, extremely low. I mean, again, when we talk about these films, you think about especially Halloween 2018, you think recently, in a, from the last couple of years, The Invisible Man, where that was very low budget, but it had a huge reward as it made over $100 million domestically at the box office and it was a huge success before the pandemic really hit that, that March in 2020. And then you get films like Fantasy Island, for example, or a few other horror films that are just goofy and people just aren't into, and they don't make a lot of money. But even if a film makes for $7 million opening weekend, and they are able to eke out a few hundred other million dollars or a few extra million during the next couple of weeks during its run, it's not going to be a huge loss for the studio because when they do hit, they hit really high and are huge financial successes for them. So they can afford to take some lumps from time to time. And that's exactly, unfortunately, what Firestarter was. And even though I'm a fan of Zac Efron and I especially want to see him do really well and get more into these roles, as he gets older. Unfortunately, it just did not hit for this film. And I think the biggest black eye against this movie is that while the film made $3.8 million this weekend, usually, even if it's a low number, you want to see a reboot, a sequel like Doctor Strange did, make a little bit more than the than the film, the predecessor before it. And this, this year's Firestarter didn't even eclipse the opening weekend of the Firestarter back in 1984 when that was one of Drew Barrymore's first ever leading roles when she was a young kid. It didn't even eclipse that number. So I understand that Universal and, 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 and Comcast and, and NBCU probably thought that this was a film that maybe wasn't going to really cut it. Maybe they saw versions of the movie and, that, and they thought, you know what, this is one where we can afford to have it go on day and date release on Peacock and also in theaters at the same time. And we don't know the numbers that this film did. We'll probably hear about it, what it did on Peacock 
in the next couple of, of weeks and in, in, in the next month or so when we get the new quarter, quarterly earnings report. But again, not a great weekend for this movie. I don't know a lot of people that did go see it and for the people that actually went out, I didn't hear the best things about this movie. So it's a little bit of a shame because I think Stephen King novels have been doing really well so far, both in theaters and on television as well. So to see this one not really hit where I remember hearing about it a couple years ago when it was first starting to be developed and Zac Efron was included in it. I, I was I was looking forward to it because again, Stephen King's stuff right now is really hitting big and creators are doing a really good job adapting it in the right format as well. So it was just a little bit ashamed to hear that this one didn't live up to those expectations as well. But for Firestarter, not the best start at the box office, but maybe we'll hear about some of those streaming numbers in the next couple of weeks or months as well. One film though that is having probably the best 2022 could possibly have is the A24 film Everything Every Everywhere All at Once which is the little engine that could and it is still on a, a, an incredible pace as it grossed another 3.3 million dollars at the box office and now has 47 million dollars domestically, 4 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of 51 million dollars and the incredible eye-popping number that you see about this film as it's been doing consistently over the last couple of weeks is that it's a minuscule of a drop in its percentage from week to week at the box office as it it fell just at around 6% this weekend staying at that number 4 spot so again even with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness out even with a film like Sonic the Hedgehog 2 or The Northman or The Lost City People are still going to see this film. This film is still gaining a lot of buzz and, and it's and it's just increasing its amount in theaters. It added this weekend over 184 extra theaters to its count. And I think you're really seeing that. And again, this is a movie that I don't think anybody saw coming at the beginning of the year when the trailers came out, but it's, it's just that word of mouth. And it shows that when people really love a movie and people wanna be a part of the conversation about something that people are really enjoying, they will go see that movie check it out as well and whether you like it or hate it you'll give it a shot and i think people are giving this thing one hell of a shot and which is a remarkable because it's the most out thing out there it is something that i don't think normal movie audience goers would really enjoy but the numbers are disproving that and people seem whether they like it or hate it we don't know but at least they're coming out it seems like the the money's really raking in for this film and for everything everywhere all at once it has a chance to potentially make history over the next couple weekends if it's able to sustain this kind of momentum moving forward as if it does gross over 50 million dollars and again it's over the 47 million dollar mark right now if it hits 50 or over 50 million dollars it will be the highest grossing a24 film of all time at the moment it's right around the edge of where ladybird is right now which is the second highest grossing a24 film but at 50 million dollars is the adam sandler uncut gems directed by the safety brothers and if it's able to hit that and eclipse that number it will become the highest grossing a24 film of all time which says something because again these films when they hit they hit really well and they do really well at the box office not again making over 100 million dollars but they do make the kind of money where again it's kind of like blumhouse you start low but if the idea is really good and you give people what they need and it's the vision that they create and people enjoy it they will go out to see the film and that small budget that you were on it turns into a huge profit for that studio that production company for the actors for the crew and that's exactly what's happening here with this movie on a 24 stock it right now so that's the 
amount for everything everywhere all at once coming at number five moving into the sixth spot is the latest in the wizarding world franchise and fantastic beasts the secrets of dumbledore that grossed an additional two and a half million dollars at the box office and now has 90 million dollars domestically along with an international total of 288 million dollars and a worldwide accumulation of 378 million dollars at the box office now the only thing that's semi saving this movie and i say semi with a, a lot of emphasis on the semi is somewhat saving this movie in some kind of a way because of that number that is making around the world which showcases that the wizarding world well it's not the the, the gangbusters that it was when the, the harry potter films were coming out it's still making some kind of money and domestically it just showcases that there's really no interest in these movies right now and again it's going to need to make a lot more money for its i think coming anywhere near profitability i think it's going to lose money for warner brothers but again it's not it's the 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 tally from international is making the numbers look better than i think they actually are when you look under the lines for this film because again the the interest isn't there the the buzz isn't really there for this film and never really was even when it opened i feel like and so we'll see what happens with this franchise but again it's not it's i don't think we're gonna see a fourth or fifth film in theaters now whether we get a streaming service show that continues the story somehow on hbo max potentially we'll see there's still a lot of hoops that would need to be drawn for that to potentially happen i think but when we get to that where we get to it however with secrets of dumbledore not a a great performance at the box office right now then coming in at number seven this weekend from number six is the northman which grossed an additional 1.7 million dollars at the box office and now has 31 million dollars domestically 27 million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of about the number is 58 million dollars for some reason when i looked at it i thought it's a 28 so i just want to double check it's 58 million dollars that it has worldwide at the box office right now then rounding out the top three in the top 10 coming in at number eight from the number seven spot was the Sandra Bullock Channing Tatum led film The Lost City, which grows an additional $1.6 million at the box office and now has $97 million domestically. It also internationally has a total of $68 million for a worldwide total of $165 million. It just came out onto Paramount Plus this past week. So it's pretty remarkable that this film, again, it's been out for eight weeks now, but it's at the number eight spot right now. It's still in the top 10. I remember when The Batman came out on HBO Max, I had a huge dip in its sales even though it was kind of again at the waning days of its of its window and its performance they made all their money in weeks prior still it had a huge dip when it went to hbo max because people went right to there to check out the movie since it was on their digital service so to see the lost city here again even though it's at number eight showcases that people are still going to see this film in theaters even though it's on a streaming service right now again it's all about the little wins and that's a little win for movie theaters right there then coming out at number nine was another newcomer to this slate and that is the film family cam which grossed 1.3 million dollars at the box office and it did not come out internationally so its worldwide total is still the domestic total as well and since there haven't been any other weekends for the movie it stays at 1.3 million dollars then to round out the top 10 is the nicholas cage film the unbearable weight of massive talent with 1 million dollars at the box office and now has 18 million dollars domestically 5 million dollars in internationally for a worldwide total of 23 million dollars so 
That will do it for this weekend's box office recap. Just going to go round, down the order up, up the order again from 10 to 1. Number 10 was The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Number 9 was Family Camp. Number 8 was The Lost City. Number 7, The Northman. Number 6, Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. Number 5 was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Number 4 was Firestarter. Number 3 was Sonic the Hedgehog. Number 2 was The Bad Guys. And then coming in at number 1 for a second consecutive weekend was Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So, again, what do you guys think about this weekend's box office for the top 10? Do you think Doctor Strange will perform at number one again next weekend? If you do think it does, what do you think it'll make? Do you think it'll do well before Top Gun Maverick makes its way to the big screen upcoming for Memorial Day next week? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. Now, to move away from the box office and to what is going to be really our main story for the rest of the podcast for the most part, even though we got a bunch of other stuff to get to, this was the thing that people are going to be talking about all day today. And it was something that I think came out of left field, but what better way for something to come out of left field than for it to be about a galaxy far, far away in Star Wars. So yesterday was the Attack of the Clones or Star Wars episode two, the Attack of the Clones 20th anniversary. And we thought that would probably be the, the, the big thing to come out maybe for Star Wars this week as we get ramped up for next week's premiere, two episode premiere of Obi-Wan Kenobi. But Vanity Fair said not so fast, hold my beer, and they put out an entire spread on the future of the Star Wars universe. And now when I talk about spread, I mean this thing is, I, I, I read it online, if you pick up a magazine for this thing, it's gotta be at least seven to eight pages probably. I mean, this thing really goes into detail about everything upcoming in the Star Wars universe, specifically when it comes to what is really pushing this new era of the franchise. And it is has to do with television and streaming on Disney Plus, where you have shows like The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett doing well. And then, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi is looking to make a splash. And then we have future shows like Ahsoka and Andor. And a lot of people have been wondering, what are when are all these things going to come out? Are we going to get new surprises and things coming up? We have Star Wars Celebration happening next weekend as well. When are we going to get news about what the future of Star Wars looks like? What do the movies look like? And then Lucasfilm and basically said and plastered it right down online for people to see. Here you go. Enjoy. And man, oh man, did they put down their foot. Again, really kind of getting into the, the, the weeds of what they've been thinking about. What's upcoming gave a, a few details on shows that are coming out in the next couple of years, gave some, even though they're vague, some release idea for when some of these shows are going to be coming out. Did give an update on some of the movies that are set to come out, but hopefully in the next couple of years. And then also talked about the, the journey of, of, of Star Wars throughout the last five or so years, ever since Force Awakens came out, and kind of the, the new trajectory and the new mindset that is going on over at Lucasfilm and the company that, that harbors the Star Wars franchise right now, and what they're looking at as the future moving forward. And even though it's a mixture of movies and TV, a lot of it is having to do with the world of television. But before we even get to that, even though this is a podcast and you can't see my face or I'm not showing anything right now, I implore you, whether it's actually checking out the article on Vanity Fair or whether you just look online for the photos, look on look on Google Images somewhere to find these Vanity Fair photos that the one and only, the great Anne Leibovitz did 
for Vanity Fair. They are stunning. They are some of my favorite Star Wars pictures to come out from a Vanity Fair shoot. And she does a bunch of them. And, and she has her own creative style, colors, look. It all works so well. Just from the cover page alone, where you have a, a great lineup from Ahsoka Tano, played by Rosario Dawson, the Mandalorian himself, Pedro Pascal, unmasked, the Jedi Master himself, Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi, and of course, Diego Luna's Rebel himself, Cassie and Andor. They're all on the cover. They have this kind of blue hue tint to it that showcases that light side that these characters are on. And it's just so good. I really enjoyed it. And then you just kind of go into some of these photos. I mean, they implored a lot of the stagecraft technology behind it, the volume. So you get these amazing, illustrious colors, like these these sunset colors of, of orange and red mixed in with kind of purple against these sand dunes. It just looks amazing. And, and then you go down the list of an awesome photo of Hayden Christensen, the one and only Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, practicing his his lightsaber swings in preparation of playing the character in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Great look at him, kind of in a cape, kind of getting into shape and, and not having the full armor on, but he looks really, really cool. And then kind of looking at some of the other ones is a cool kind of promotional image of the big three that are going to be featured in Obi-Wan. You have the look of Obi, you have the full, really first official look at Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, even though we have an idea idea of what the Darth Vader costume looks like, so you don't really have to fully hide it, but it was really kind of cool to see it side by side with Ewan, and also with Moses Ingram, who's playing a new Inquisitor character, and Reva, she seems to have a dual-wielded lightsaber, kind of like Darth Maul, or like some of the other Inquisitors have, like the Grand Inquisitor. It just looks so, so cool, and then, of course, you get into some of the other photos as well, past the Anakin Skywalker one. There's an awesome image of really kind of the, the brain trust of the Star Wars television front right now. It's John Favreau, Dave Filoni, Deborah Chow, who's the director and kind of supervisor of the Obi-Wan show. And then right next to all of them on the right side is the one and only Kathleen Kennedy, who's the president, president over there at Lucasfilm. And we'll get into her a little bit later as well. But you see some of the cool pictures and you see some of the cool images that are on the volume. You see Slave One or you see you see, you see the, the the ship that Boba Fett rides. You see kind of the, the monitors that they utilize, the full look of the volume. It just, it's so, so cool. So that's another image that I really enjoy as well. There's a cool image of John Favreau with baby Grogu and, and kind of the puppeteering behind that one. That was really cool to see. So again, some awesome photos coming from Ann Leibowitz who has always covered Star Wars for Vanity Fair whenever they've had a chance to get an inside scoop on the franchise. And I honestly think this is the biggest scoop that anybody has ever gotten on Star Wars. And especially when it comes to a future, the future of the franchise, because usually when we see these covers, it's usually for an upcoming movie. I remember seeing these for The Last Jedi, for The Rise of Skywalker, and it details those movies. But this one is really detailing the scope of what Lucasfilm and Star Wars really want to do in the future of their franchise and, lo- and what they really want to try to get into the nitty gritty. So we're going to kind of try to break this all down as best as we possibly can. And we're going to start out with the thing that was really the main focus of all these articles. And that is 
TV. And again, I think TV for Star Wars is key. It's been the success for the franchise so far in terms of revitalizing it after kind of the mixed response to the sequel trilogy and some of the spin-off movies. I think streaming with The Mandalorian with even though Boba Fett was a little divisive, it still was a it was still was a show that people were checking out. You had animated shows like the final season of Clone Wars, Star Wars the Bad Batch, the Star Wars Visions, which was the first anime show in the Star Wars universe. So all that is really key in giving the platform that this franchise has to really kind of rise back to prominence and give some kind of a vision for Kathleen Kennedy and for her creative team and team overall in Lucasfilm on what they wanted to where to take this franchise right now. So again, we're going to start off with talking about the TV stuff and the first thing of course is the is the most recent thing that is set to come out in the Star Wars universe and that of course is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And again, a lot of the details that they kind of gave, we've been hearing throughout the press tour, we've seen it in the trailers before. So there's not really a whole lot of I think surprises to really kind of get into just kind of a lot of reaffirming some things that we've heard about in other articles and and interviews and you you McGregor talked about it again in terms of returning to the franchise and that he really kind of had a sour relationship especially when all the reviews are coming out for the prequels back in the late 90s early 2000s and how that kind of soured his relationship with the franchise but then as he says he went on to appreciate them a lot more he went and attended a Star Wars marathon that he got to kind of be one of the guest MCs for when introducing one of the movies and he saw the overwhelming positive response that this that that the films were getting from the younger audience and now that the people my age are a little bit older a little bit younger that saw those prequel trilogies and know that to be their star wars like a lot of the older fans do when they think about the original trilogy or how people i think is going to be the same thing when you have younger kids who watch the sequel trilogy with ray finn poe kylo ren they're all going to love those characters too and i'm sure they're going to want them back as well so with obi-wan and neil mcgregor he had that relationship with people and he realized that his version of Obi-Wan Kenobi in those films made a difference for people. It really inspired a lot of people to get into the arts, to get creative, to, to, to enjoy Star Wars, to enjoy sci-fi. And so I think for people that enjoyed that in the 70s and 80s, that's what happened in, in between 99 and 2005. So... Again, I think for 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 Ewan McGregor, he realized how great and how beloved it was, and how his character was beloved. And then he he put in a call to a few producers and people, and, and Lucasfilm called him and asked if he wanted to be on board. He said yes. And I'm I'm putting it, I'm 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 stripping it down from a lot of stuff, but he said yes basically. And he also became a producer on the show. He had a lot more input into the creative story behind it. And so again, there's not a whole lot of new news that came out of it. Again, just kind of of reconfirming everything, reaffirming a whole bunch of stuff. But the one thing that really kind of peeked out to me, and again, it's been talked about over and over again, but I thought Deborah Chow, excuse me, Deborah Chow gave a great answer. And that was talking about the the relevancy, the why to there should be a duel, a rematch between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. And on Kathleen Kennedy, not, not Kathleen Kennedy, excuse me, but on Deborah Chow's side, she was basically talking about even though people knew 
the, the duel between Vader and Obi-Wan was in episode four, and it seems like it would go from three to four, and all this time passed, maybe you could fit in a fight somewhere, and it's still able to fit in chronologically and into canon in a nice seamless way and being able to kind of to kind of do that. And, and to hear what Deborah Chow was thinking about putting this all together, it amazes me to how big of, of, a, of a piece she was in regards to this. And, and creatives and, and directors are always huge parts of a project. You, you want to be able to fulfill their vision. They're the kind of the leaders, the conductors of the orchestra that is going on on set. And so for for Deborah Chow to be the one to, to kind of see this and then be the one to make these decisions, even though they already had a sh- to, to have a showrunner, it showcased the initiative that she took and showcased the, the, the level of enjoyment that she had when covering the Star Wars universe. And you saw that in the first two episodes that really got her the, the Obi-Wan job in the first in two episodes of season one of the mandalorian that she did so incredibly well and then to kind of hear again about why she needed the duel this is what she had to say in the vanity fair piece part of chow's successful pr- perspective on why vader and kenobi about face uh, should face each other again excuse me may surprise even the most rent Star Wars fans, especially those who think of the two as harboring an epic contempt for one another. For me, across the prequels, though, the trilogy, there's a love story dynamic with these two that goes through the whole thing, Chow says. I felt like it was quite hard to not include the person who left Kenobi in such anguish in the series. What intrigued her was the idea that despite what Vader had become, Kenobi might still care about, about him deeply. I don't know who you could not, she says. I don't think he ever will not care about him what is special what's special about that relationship is that they love each other so again i think it just showcases the great creative vision that deborah chow has that she knows these characters somewhat she knows she realizes what would work best in the show and it's just kind of great to hear the the behind the scenes of it all that this was recently a movie but then it got moved around then it became a tv show and then after the pandemic they were able to decide that vader didn't need to become the villain and it was really kind of cool to see all that kind of come together and i think the one thing about this article is that they really kind of go in again deep about certain things that happened that they regret or they kind of confirm things that might have been rumors at one point and so i just think that was really really interesting but again we got some information about about this show but not not a whole lot because it is so close to being released on Disney Plus that it, it, it's it's okay not to give everyone a whole lot of details. Just kind of continue that press of why you enjoy these films, why the prequels now mean more to you than they did maybe recently, and why you enjoy bringing them back. So I just think that was the continuation of that from kind of the press tour that she was doing, or that, that Obi-Wan, or not Obi-Wan, excuse me, that Hugh McGregor was doing for, for the movie, or for, for the show, excuse me. So again, I just think that for, for Obi-Wan, it was just things that we've been hearing beforehand. So not some cool details, especially in regards to Vader and Obi-Wan. But again, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it all kind of comes together. And we're only 10 days away, guys, which is crazy. We're only 10 days away from Obi-Wan Kenobi premiering on Disney Plus after the whirlwind that the show has been on. It's almost finally here for people to check out. Then we go into what is going to potentially be the next show in the Star Wars universe after Obi-Wan Kenobi wraps in the summertime. And that is a show that is going to be coming out confirmed at least for sometime in late summer of this year and that is what is being titled the first season 
of Andor, which is said to be a spin-off of the Cassian Andor character that was in Rogue One. He was a very interesting character, played brilliantly well by Diego Luna, and it seems like we have Tony Gilroy back, who was a big part of kind of the reshoots that I think really made Rogue One shine as the film that it was. And so he's coming back now to kind of direct more of a pseudo-war spy show than and something more grittier as a prequel in seeing kind of a, a younger version of who this character ultimately becomes. And we hadn't really heard a whole lot of details in regards to us. I think the last time we really heard anything was back in, on the Disney Investor Day in December of 2020. So this is really kind of the first time in this Vanity Fair piece that we are hearing a lot about what this show is going to entail, what it's going to cover. And apparently in terms of story details, Andor is going to cover and explore the backstory to the character, revealing what drew him into the Galactic Rebellion and how he evolved from a self-serving Nilsht into a selfless martyr. And apparently the story begins with the destruction of Andor's birth world, then follows Follows him into adulthood when he realizes that he can't run forever. His adopted home will become the base of our first whole season, and we wish and we watch that that place become radicalized. Gilroy says. Then we see another planet that's completely taken apart in a colonial way. The Empire is expanding rapidly. They're wiping out anyone who's in their way by journeys, and Andor's path will be to block theirs. Also, one aspect that was announced at the Investor Day in 2020 was that Mon Mothma, the younger version of Mon Mothma, will be coming back to this role, and it will be played by Guinevere O'Reilly, who also did the character in Episode 3, and also, again, in Rogue One. And she was kind of cool, but it seems like she's going to have a lot more of a prominent role this time around, as the show will also focus on Mon Mothma a lot more, and that apparently that story is going to run parallel to the Andor character storyline, with whom we will know eventually became, became one of her key agents. It's a huge orchestral Dickinson ensemble cast, says Tony Gilroy. So it sounds like this is going to be a big epic for the Star Wars franchise, and that they're really kind of going big with this, and they're not just focusing on one character, they're focusing on multiple characters and how their storylines will eventually intersect and connect and lead up to that point that we first see when when Felicity Jones's character Jin is caught up in this rebellious war. So again, hearing all this, it, it sounded great. And from Tony Gilroy, who continues to kind of talk about the show, describing what it's going to be, he says, it's a refugee story with desperate people fleeing the empire at the full force of its power. It's the journey of a migrant, he says. The, that feeling of having to move is behind this story, very profoundly and very strong. That shapes you as a person. It definitely, it defines you in many ways and what you are willing to do. So again, it sounds like when it comes to this show that it's really very much going to be a spy thriller that we hadn't seen before in Star Wars before that I'm very much looking forward to. It's going to be dealing with a lot more undercover ops and and and, and hiding underground and really kind of, kind of getting into the dirty work. And who better to play that than somebody of Diego Luna's caliber? He is a really good actor who has proven it time and time again. And I'm really excited that he gets to kind of, again, showcase that years later as Andor. And it's, uh, I'm very curious to see what he picked up on it now that maybe he didn't pick up on some things when it first the first movie came out back in 2016 so uh, again i just I'm, I'm really excited about this show and again not on the same level as obi-wan kenobi or even some of the other ones but so it's something that i'm very much looking forward to and 
I'm very interested to see how Andor kind of all comes together. I know for a while it was rumored that it could be a 13 or 12 episode debut or really kind of episode rollout or it might be eight, it might be nine. So we don't know technically just yet, but uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, again, I just think that for Andor, this is a really, really, really good beginning to it. And I'm really excited to finally see footage, hopefully, that maybe we could get at Star Wars Celebration or something else in the next couple of months as well. And then going from Andor, we go into The Mandalorian. And there was a bunch of stuff about this show as it was really kind of the pioneering show that really launched not just the Disney Plus streaming service, but also the era of Lucasfilm and Star Wars into the streaming age. And so it makes no sense that they've already been to work on a season three. They've already shot it for the most part, and it is right now expected to come out sometime on Disney Plus at around 2022 into early 2023. So that was probably in regards to the news of season three of The Mandalorian. But then they got into kind of how revolutionary this show actually was. And not just, again, being a big precursor for Disney and for streaming services and for shows on streaming services in terms of the quality, but it also went behind the, the tech that went behind it. And really, when we talk about the phases of of Lucasfilm, of Star Wars, they've defined the envelope for what we think about visual effects. I mean, what Lucas was able to do with with puppets and imagery and and scale downs on on certain on certain props and things like that. It was it was a miraculous it, it was just a, it was a miraculous achievement that George Lucas was able to create. And then of course going to the prequels, it was about digital and digital restoration and digital cameras, turning your theaters over into digital into digital instead of going into film. And so the prequel trilogy really helped redefine the way that we look at tech nowadays and, and digital technology as well. And then of course is is this third era where it's about the volume and it's about LED screens and, and, and actually doing something with computer walls behind you and you're acting in front of that instead of acting on a big green screen or blue screen right now. You're actually acting out things as you're seeing them happen. And I've always said it, I think it's, it's a great tool for what actors are able to do. And I just think that the way that they were able to kind of get around and, and do some of that stuff is remarkable. And now apparently they have about three volumes, or as they call them, stagecrafts, in London, in, in LA, and Vancouver. There's three in LA, there's one in Vancouver, and one in London somewhere. So it's become a, not well, now it's become a worldwide thing. It's in two different countries, it's or two different areas now. It's very much a big part of, I think, what the culture is gonna be in the next couple of years, where these companies are getting this technology and putting it out there and realizing how easy it is to make certain things. I mean, the Batman, you some of that. Craig Fraser worked on it with John Favreau on The Mandalorian season one when he was a DP. He utilized it for some of his scenes for the Batman. And then same thing happens when you look at Thor Love and Thunder. I mean, Taika used it for the finale of season one because he was on that show with Star Wars. And then he reutilized some of those things, I'm sure, when he was in London or somewhere else, or he's going to when he comes and he's able to utilize that for his film in Thor Love and Thunder. So... I just think that what he's able to do 
with that is gonna be very interesting and showcases the new innovative ways they're able to create things on screen and visualize that instead of just doing a lot of previs. Well, you, even though you still do previs, you're able to see it all as it's happening. It's a great reference for actors and it's something that the, the creatives over at Lucasfilm, that Favreau and Filoni, were always able to kind of come up with. And it's a crazy story to hear about what actually happened in regards to the volume in James Cameron. And what's not a new revolutionary piece of technology if you're not mentioning James Cameron's name in some way? And it's really cool in the article where apparently they used him as a litmus test because if there's one person that can point out anything even wrong with some kind of visual aspect that doesn't seem right, it would be the master of all that who's immersed you in a whole new world, no pun intended, with Pandora and Avatar. And he seems to have done it again with Avatar The Way of Water. And it's seemed like he wasn't able to notice a single thing that was on the screen when he watched some of the test shots that they were able to come up with. And when you're able to fool James Cameron like that, it knows that you're really onto something. And that and that brings me, of course, to the men who really kind of started it all along with the woman herself and Kathleen Kennedy. And that is, of course, John Favreau and Dave Filoni. And you learn in this article about the history that those two had together and how kind of a whirlwind it was to get to where they are right now in, in their incredible relationship and and how even though it seemed like they were the best of buddies and that they're, they're, they, they have synergy, they know what page they're on, According to this article, it didn't really seem like that at first. Apparently, Favreau had this idea for what he wanted a Mandalorian show to be, the lone kind of gunslinger in Western. But then Dave Filoni, who had a completely other idea, where apparently he thought of Mandalorians as kind of pacifist in a time period in Star Wars. And so that it's it's about a culture that changes and evolves over time. And Kathleen Kennedy, and, and this is again where, and we'll get into Kathleen Kennedy at the end of all this, because there's a lot to talk about her and there's a lot in this article that I think it says about her as a leader and and where the Star Wars franchise is going and, and, and all this kind of stuff when we talk about her in Star Wars the one thing that she she got right in the turmoil things that were going on with the sequel trilogy is getting these guys together and it seems like it was it could have turned into something else where she describes it where she wanted to get these two on a kind of like a play date and instead of something erupting into a turf war where they're both kind of working against each other on two different ideas or two different things and the same area she got them together and they were able to begin to work on that relationship and be able to create that synergy and it's also amazing to hear that one of the things that defines the era of Star Wars on Disney Plus that made the Mandalorian a cultural phenomenon, one of the big talking points and the biggest debates was the inclusion of, of Grogu. And Grogu, as it turns out, was was John Favreau's idea. He wanted to put that in there, but Dave Filoni kind of being that mentor from George Lucas, kind of knowing everything about Star Wars and, and, and what George always wanted the universe to be and what he wants it to continue to be, having that mindset, he was a little hesitant at first. He wanted to kind of protect that mystery that George Lucas himself kind of created with the Yoda species where we don't know anything about them and there's something that that are just beings out there that we just don't know a lot about their culture and including this, was that going to be something that was tampered with? And as we've seen in 
two and a half seasons with the Mandalorian and Grogu that they've been able to do a really good job of, even though we learn more about Grogu the character, it's not going into the origins of that species. It's going to the origins of who Grogu is. And each season, whether it's two-man seasons of Mando or some episodes in the Book of Boba Fett, we've we've been learning more and more about this character as things have gone on. So it just, again, showcases that Kathleen Kennedy does have a great producer mentality. She is one of the great producers of all time, and she was able to see what this relationship could be, put these two in a room together, and magic what was able to happen, both on the screen and what they were able to create and write and create digitally and really kind of spearhead a new frontier on the digital landscape and really kind of, I think, revolutionize how filmmaking is really going to be utilized. Like I said before, with with with, with the Batman and with Thor Love and Thunder, we're seeing all these big blockbusters utilize this technology nowadays, and I think it's going to be even more so now than ever before. So it was really kind of cool to hear all about that. So Mandalorian got a huge, a huge shout out and a huge scribe within this article. And then they also talked about the the Ahsoka show, which again, we hadn't really heard a whole lot about. We know Rosario Dawson's coming back. We know that Dave Filoni is overseeing this project. He wrote all the scripts. It seems like he potentially, again, it wasn't confirmed even in this article. It was not confirmed that he is going to direct all the episodes, but he is going to be the all-knowing or the overseer, as the article says, of this, this show and what this is going to be. And even though some details weren't given, there were some story details in the base basic conceptus of this show and this is what the article said about it the quest ahsoka has hinted at her inner guest appearances on the mandalorian and boba fett hunting an imperial grand admiral named thrawn who vanished into deep space at the conclusion of the animated rebel series is likely to be explored further although plot details are still being tightly held but filoni did kind of talk about the show and the meaning of ahsoka and what the story is going to be and this is what filoni said ahsoka is a continuous story it is definitely driving to toward a goal in my mind as opposed to bring to being little singular adventures. That's what I want the character to be doing and I think that's what fans want now. They have such a relationship with her. I've only recently started to understand all that all those kids that watch Clone Wars are now a lot older. They're very excited about all the things they grew up with as they should be. And then even kind of even McGregor was a little bit of a insider a little bit where it, it seems like the McGregor family is going to be all about Star Wars as while he's returning to Obi-Wan Kenobi he also kind of confirmed that what the trades were reporting a little while back was that his now wife, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, is now going to be a part of the Star Wars universe as well. And he kind of also joked about how their, their, their kid, their, their, their newborn, is going to be involved in a massive Star Wars family. He kind of joked about how, in the end, he could somehow become a Star Trek fan, a Trekkie, as he, as he says it, and it's quoted in the article. But, uh, but that was really kind of funny to hear, and, and to, to hear from Rosario Dawson, who seems ecstatic, and again, looks awesome in the photos that were done by Ann, Lees, uh, excuse me, Ann Leibowitz, and she talked about it where she said that she, she looked at the email, at her emails, and she kind of tweeted out or Instagrammed out the whole rumor and speculation from the trades that Hayden Christensen was going to come back as Anakin Skywalker, which of course would make a lot of sense since Ahsoka was the Padawan to Anakin in the Clone Wars animated show. And again, overseen by Dave Filoni, all this kind of, it seems to be coming together in live action. But when she kind of put that out there, apparently from the quote that she gives, she says, I looked in my email and Star Wars is like, you might want to take that down. I'm like, man, I can't be trusted. So again, it seems like Rosario Dawson is having 
having a lot of fun. Filoni's excited about this. And again, if there's one person that should be taking the spearhead of this, he directed both episodes that, that Rosario Dawson were in in season two, Amando, and, and the episode of the Book of Boba Fett she was in. Dave Filoni directed all those episodes. And so it makes sense that he would be the one to bring this character to live action and to uh, and, and have her own major prominent show. So it's exciting to hear kind of some new information about that. I think it's going to be a big show that I think is going to really give a give an itch to the animated show fans, especially for Rebels. It seems like we, we, we're going to be getting a live action Sabine Wren. We probably are going to be getting a live action Admiral Thrawn, a live action Ezra Bridger potentially. All that stuff seems like it's going to be coming from this because we know Filoni has been wanting to do a sequel to these characters. I know he wanted to do a sequel to the Clone Wars animated show before he did Mandalorian, and then he wanted to do something with Rebels, and it seems like instead of doing animated, it's going to be going to live action. So all that seems like it's going to be great, and I can't wait for that. And then we went into one of the last shows that they kind of teased about and talked about was one that I'm actually looking forward to. And after Obi-Wan Kenobi, it's probably my most anticipated show probably the second most anticipated show after Ahsoka comes out in terms of future anticipation it would probably be Ahsoka and then it would be The Acolyte which is going to be an all new brand new show original show that's going to be set within the High Republic they did say in the Vanity Fair article that it's going to be set up for some time in the future also before I forget the with the Ahsoka show they did say that it's going to be set for some time to be released in 2023. They did not get a specific date. So that is something that we're going to have to be hearing about earlier on. And if I didn't mention before, season three of Mandalorian is going to be set between either 2022, late 2022, around Christmas holiday time, or early 2023, kind of like the Book of Boba Fett. No surprise. We heard a lot of rumors and speculation about that. And then same thing with Ahsoka Tano. It make a lot of sense, especially if they're starting to film right now. With the Acolyte, there were not a lot of of speculation or even confirmation within this report of when this show is going to come out. It was said that the writing for the show is complete. The scripts are set. They're now casting the show right now. There are rumors. And again, in, in the article that Anthony Bresnikan did, he was the writer of this whole Vanity Fair piece that it was reported that Amanda Stenberg is going to be the head of this show. Again, so Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, they did not confirm that was the case, so it's still kind of rumored, reported from the trades right now, so we don't know anything about that, but casting is underway right now, so I'm sure we'll hear more about this later on. Le- Leslie Headland, who was, was one of the co-showrunners of the hit Netflix show Russian Doll, she has been working on the show for about two years. I remember hearing about this show back in the Investor Day of 2020 like a lot of these other ones so it seems like this is very much a show that that they're giving a lot of thought to and really putting a lot of hard work in uh, into the, this kind of a show because it's going to be set in an era that we're focusing on within books and comic books, but not never within live action before, ne- never in movies and, and never in television. This is going to be the first time we see this stuff within kind of this peaceful, glorious era of Star Wars and the galaxy that we know nothing about. We know about the 
the lives of, of the Galactic Republic and then the fall of it in Revenge of the Sith and that brought the rise of the Empire and then we're learning more about the, the fall of the Empire and, and the formation of the New Republic within the Mandalorian and, and Book of Boba Fett shows right now. We're going to be exploring more of the prequel to, to original trilogy stuff with Obi-Wan Kenobi and then of course we have the sequel stuff. So we, we're, we've kind of been within this 60 or so year period within Star Wars that we've explored, but before that, nothing else has really been explored within live action. So, so to kind of get that now is really, really exciting. And it, according to reports and according to the article, it's taking place roughly a hundred years before the Phantom Menace. It is a, apparently going to be a mystery thriller set in a prosperous and seemingly peaceful era when the galaxy is still sleek and glistening. And this is what Leslie Headland had to say about the making of the show and what they're looking forward to in terms of tone and style and what they're trying to inspire from in terms of this show. We actually use the term Renaissance or the Age of Enlightenment. Jedis were not always aesthetic monk-like figures living selflessly and bravely. The Jedi uniforms are gold and white. It's almost like they would never get dirty. They would never be out and about, Hedlund says. The idea is that they could have used these types of uniforms because that's how little they're getting into scrimmages. A lot of those characters haven't even been born yet. We're taking a lot of the political and personal and spiritual things that came up in a time period that we don't know much about. My question when watching The Phantom Menace was always like, well, how did these things get to this point? How do we get to a point where a Sith Lord can infiltrate the Senate and none of the Jedi? Pick on it like what went wrong? What are the scenarios? that led us to this moment. So it's that all sounds great. And, and so I really am excited to see more about that. Also, if this is gonna be more Sith heavy, focusing on the Sith a lot more, kind of the rules of two and how that kind of formulated it, and just a lot more about this era that we don't know about. And I think that's one of the great things when we go into a galaxy like this or a universe like this, whether it's Westeros or the Middle Earth, of really kind of going back in time and seeing, kind of creating a new canvas, new land landscape and creating new stories that doesn't that connects to stuff later down the line but right away when initially working on it you have free reign of doing all this stuff so i'm very curious about that curious about learning more about the jedi the sith the the kind of the old relics of that time period all that fascinates me and i'm really excited to see what she's going to do with that show so hearing all that stuff gets me really excited if i had a guess depending on how when they cast this stuff whether we get major casting announcements at celebration or down the line i'm sure this will either probably come come out by 2023 or, or maybe 2024, the latest. So we'll see where that goes. But this is one that gets me really excited. And in a brand new show that was announced in this Vanity Fair article that has been rumored about for a while is a new show that is right now, it has no official title. It's just being codenamed, probably the codename of the production in Grammar Rodeo. It is going to be a show that takes place during the post-Return of the Jedi Mandalorian reconstruction that follows the fall of the empire it is going to be as the article describes it it's going to be a show that is a galactic version of classic amblin coming of age adventure films of the 80s right now there are casting notices that call for four children around the ages of 11 to 12 years old and that kind of falls in line with some of the rumors that we've been hearing about of a stranger things like show that we did hear that it was going to be set during the high republic but maybe that part of the report was wrong it's going to be set during this time 
period, and we're going to be getting younger versions of Jedi, and that's going to be very interesting to see as well. And one of the other things that kind of corroborates a little bit of a recent Marvel report that came out is that this show... Not that it's going to be directed, they did not say that, but it is going to be created and executive produced by Spider-Man director John Watts and the writer of Spider-Man Homecoming, Chris Ford. Again, it did not say that John John Watts is directing, but he's just one of the creators on this show right now. And so it seems like for right now, there's a, there's a little bit more of a reason for why he took a little bit of a, of a break from Spider-Man. That, it, that I know there were rumors and reports that he just wanted to step away. People were wondering... Does that mean that they were going to give Fantastic Four to John Krasinski? That they were going to make, they were going to have John Watts either do another Spider-Man film or get him, give him something bigger for Marvel? Or did he really just want to break? Did he just want to do other things? Was it something more? Was it Star Wars? And it turns out that it, it for the most part, it was Star Wars, but it wasn't a movie. It wasn't. He, I mean, he could probably direct one or two of these episodes, probably if he wanted to, like Favreau and Filoni have done, but and, and Robert Rodriguez with Boba Fett, but. It seems like right now he's just in the, in a in a creator role right now and show running this getting this off the ground but this does excite me and and I think we need shows like this again kind of diversifying the portfolio of Star Wars giving everybody new hints of, of certain things and, and different things that people really enjoy about these franchises that can, that can keep it fresh and new and so I just think that that is something that is really exciting and interesting and I'm really looking forward to that show. So that's all the television stuff that came out of it. And we spent about a good 30 or so minutes just talking about that. On the film side, it's not as huge. It was just kind of quick cuts. It was a little paragraph that came out of the Vanity Fair article. They kind of talked about some of the films that they're coming out with. They kind of went into discussion a little bit about the things that worked on the the the, the sequel trilogy front and that it's, it's something that... It is going to be more of a singular vision era instead of kind of going in these trilogies, which she kind of contradicts herself a little bit on that. Um, Kathleen Kennedy does kind of contradict herself on that a little bit. We'll get into that in a second. But Kathleen Kennedy has said that they're they're not thinking about trilogies anymore and that even though the, the sequel trilogy did well and made a gazillion dollars at the box office, it was some of the highest grossing films of all time, still it, it did not satisfy them in what they wanted to do. And she kind of said it where the, and she said in the article quoting, movies all, the, the movies earned a billion dollars, but the zigzagging narrative was conspicuous. So it seems like they're going more in singular visions as of right now, doing standalone films, but they're standalone films that creators can kind of do their own thing with. So some of them, some of the things are a little surprising, which he said on the film front though. So apparently it's not named yet, but the Taika Waititi film is still being in development right now. That is a movie that will likely be the first film to come out now whether we get an announcement about that at star wars celebration or at a future time right now that's still in development but there were no other details in regards to it surprisingly even though it was reported that patty jenkins is no longer doing or that there are creative differences or that they were delaying rogue squadron star wars rogue squadron with her directing it it seems like after seeming like it was never going to happen whatsoever right now they did list that rogue squadron with patty jenkins is still in the works but it's on the back burner right now but it's still happening it's just going to happen further down the line interestingly enough 
Kathleen Kennedy did not confirm that there is a Kevin Feige produced Star Wars film happening. She just said, when, when asked about it, she just said, I would love to see what movie he might come up with, but right now, no, there isn't anything specifically, which kind of contradicts a little bit what Michael Waldron has been saying in the press recently since he is coming off of, of writing Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. He's been making the rounds and the trades. And people have been asking about that Star Wars script that he's that apparently Kevin Feige has asked him to do. And not that he talked a, a lot about it, but he did say that right now, that's the thing that he's focused on writing right now, and he's working on it. But that's all we know about it. But it seems like, as of right now, Kathleen Kennedy is, is non-committal on talking about it right now, which, again, there's a lot of other stuff going on, and I'm sure there's still a lot of things that need to happen for that film to actually come to fruition. But that was a little surprising that she didn't confirm that one. And another one she said that is on the back burner that is still in development, that apparently is still going to happen. It, this, it's not dead yet. It's still in the works, and that is the Ryan Johnson trilogy that was announced back in 2017 before The Last Jedi came out, and I'm sure Lucasfilm was really happy about what Ryan Johnson did, and again, I'm a defender of The Last Jedi. We're not going to get into that. This is about the future of Star Wars, but again, he did. I think he did a great job with that movie, and they liked what he did, but because of the response, they kind of let that die a little bit, but they brought it back saying, yeah, no, we haven't talked about it, but that doesn't mean it's, it's dead yet. They're just kind of given the the excuse and the statement that we're, he, he can't work on it right now. Ryan Johnson's busy with Knives Out with Netflix. So again, that it showcases that that film franchise, that trilogy is still in the works right now. And talking about trilogy, it kind of contradicts what Kathleen Kennedy was just said in the article about using the word trilogy, hesitating to use it anymore because Star Wars is much more persistent about storytelling. So maybe it is a trilogy, maybe it isn't, who knows? I just thought, you know, a little contradiction, a little contradiction within that statement and maybe you could have said something else instead of trilogy, but again, it, it's it, it's all in the same vein, I think, but again, I just think that contradicts yourself just a teeny tiny bit. And that brings me to kind of the final phase of talking about all of this, and that is about Kathleen Kennedy and the future of Star Wars. And this, this article, again, very much laid out almost all the cards that, that Star Wars is going to be doing in the next couple of years. And again, some of it was clear, some of it was a little foggy, but gave it an idea of what they're going to be doing. And it very much said that even though we're going to be making movies right here, right now, the way of the future is television. The, tech, the, 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 the technological advancements is in, is in streaming. It's in television right now. And something that even... I want to say real quick that Farrell said about the Mandalorian, about the stagecraft technology, was that when making a, a, a show, it takes half the time to make a season of television than it would a Star Wars and MCU film because you're able to film everything there. You have all the visuals there. You don't need to go out to locations or 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 go out to external places, or go out to other sets. Everything's in, in that one location for you, basically. They can shoot four or five things and, and put them out as fast as possible because they can all just shoot right then and there. Production go a lot faster than a six, seven month process really when you're going to all these different locations and you're going to interior locations, exterior locations. You don't need all of that stuff. And again, I think it just showcased what this is, what what Star Wars is moving moving forward. And I think it, it showcases about Kathleen Kennedy is that 
for a lot of times, and she's deserved some criticism that has come her way. I've given her criticism about not having a plan. What's the focus? What are you doing for Star Wars now? You have some cool things, but but what's the focus? What's the vision? And even though it's not this MCU vision where it's all these interconnected stories telling this bigger story, they're telling they're telling a story, but it's it's told in all these different increments. And, and Kathleen Kennedy said it where she said that what's unique about Star Wars is that we're, we're one story, basically. George was always dealing with episodes. Ironically, he was serializing his storytelling. He was influenced by Flash Gordon and cliffhangers on Saturdays at movie theaters. All of that informed what the DNA of Star Wars is, which is why I think it's just organic that we made the transition into television, basically saying we have movies, but television is the way forward and we have a plan. This is our plan. This this is our vision moving forward. And basically, that is what Kathleen Kennedy is really trying to say. And I think what Lucasfilm is trying to come across with in this article. And, and I also, I got to give props to her. Props to the creative heads over at Lucasfilm as well. Because they also go into detail again about what went wrong with the ups and downs over the last five to six years with Star Wars. Whether it was something like Solo, a Star Wars story, where even though I know this this comment has been getting a little bit of a little bit controversial today, where it sounds like Kathleen Kennedy is blaming Solo, a Star Wars story, and, and, and Alden Ehrenreich for. Han Solo for that movie. I don't think she's saying that. She's what she's saying about that is they realize that it's maybe not smart to cast all younger people to play legacy characters. Like instead of getting a Sebastian Stan to be Luke Skywalker and and show up in Mandalorian Book of Boba Fett, you utilize the technology that you can use and you innovate to make those moments happen. And you're able to utilize that. And I think they just, they just realized that Alden Ehrenreich's a really good actor. Donald Glover's a really good actor. But playing Lando, playing playing Han, those are characters that it's just it's tough to. Is to over is to outshadow or make new something that's already been so beloved before, and so I just think that is really what she's saying, and that and that they they realize that, and that they can't do that, and that they're going to be committing to making to doing roles outside of legacy characters, which I think is the smart way to go. Make it new, make make the galaxy wider, which I think has always been a big complaint. Make the galaxy bigger. And I think with these shows now, you have made the galaxy bigger, introducing new worlds, characters, and, and, and everything that you would want to see within, within Star Wars. And I think it's just about the fact that She's been owning up to, again, the, everything with the box office and everything with, with, with the sequel trilogy where we needed to regroup. The film division needed to come together and they needed to work and create something different. And, and it seems like they're trying to do that. It's failed them from time to time, but it, they're trying to work through it right now. And, and I think they're almost there. And to me, one of the key lines when it comes down to what they want to see moving forward, to me, this is the key also in their future is that is something that she said about the creatives moving forward and how committed she wants them to be. And this is what she had to say. We all recognized, every single one of us, that this was a new chapter for the company and that we needed to all work together to create the architecture of where we were going. Anyone who comes into the Star Wars universe needs to know that it is a three, four, five year commitment. That's what it takes. You can't step in for a year and shoot something and then walk away. It requires that kind of nurturing. And that to me is basically her saying, 
we understand what we did wrong with the sequel trilogy. Because again, that was something where, again, talking about vision, not that it needed to create this whole new era or something like that, but to have a singular vision that if you had J.J. Abrams for every single one of the sequel trilogy films, he would have been able to make a more cohesive story. Instead of seeing, instead of basically doing J.J. do your movie, Ryan do your movie, make it kind of fit, but do your thing. And then J.J. you do episode nine, try to bring it together and or rather have one director do each film instead of doing that you have to have somebody do a singular vision and as much as the prequel again i always go back to the prequel trilogy george lucas did those films no matter how they were received it was telling a singular story it was about the rise and fall of anakin skywalker and that's what the the, that's what those three films did and it set up what we were going to get in the original trilogy and so I think when Kathleen Kennedy says that, that is that's the response she's basically saying. Where okay, you, you you want us to give you more than just one vision, or you want us to give you one vision? This is the kind of commitment that we need from you. And and then it, she talks about it with John Favreau. That was one of the first people she went to. And ever since then, we have not heard John Favreau do one thing since 2019 that hasn't been about Star Wars. From Mandalorian, he's working on. I, I believe he's he's an executive producer on the Ahsoka show. He's an executive producer on the Boca Boba Fett from what everything we've heard with Deborah Chow she went to advice for both Filoni and Favreau and coming up with the story for for Obi-Wan Kenobi so it's very much vital for how key these people are with these with these movies and I'm sure the reason uh, with the film stuff I think from a lot of stuff that we heard about up and down fluxions to me, it puts it a little bit more perspective as well where to me this answers questions about Patty Jenkins where Maybe it wasn't so much creative differences. Maybe she had a lot of stuff on her plate. Get that stuff off your plate. Get Wonder Woman 3. Get all this other stuff off the plate and then come back and work on this film and let's make it as great as we possibly can. Make it a singular vision, commit to it for a few years, and then and then we'll and, and work on it from there. Same thing with what Tyga's gonna do. Tyga's got a few other things going on right now. And I'm sure he's working on the Star Wars film, but I wouldn't be surprised in the, in the next couple of years. That's when we get his film. So again, I just think that that is very much her firing back saying this is this is the new era this is what we're going to be doing this is the mindset moving forward and i love that and again taking accountability whether it's controversial or not again i can understand the controversy sometimes behind the solo stuff but it seems like they know what they're doing now and basically kathleen kennedy is saying for the most part whether we hear some stuff from star wars celebration whether we hear some stuff from the future whatnot this is basically star wars and a brilliant cover article laying out most of their chips on the line saying this is where we're going this is the future this is what we're doing this is the success and this is how we are going in the new era of star wars and i love it i i I love it i love this article from the beautiful imagery to the quotes to the story that they've been telling in this thing i mean so well done was not expecting this thing whatsoever and we got some cool announcements some cool things and i know some people might be saying well how come we didn't get this at star wars celebration you can't put this at a at a presentation i feel like i feel like this very much works as an article and then if you want to fill in some certain things whether it's new information about ahsoka or new information about this new show from john watts or things about the films you can tell that stuff at celebration as well so 
I, this is this was brilliant. This was awesome. It falls right in line in getting you ready for Star Wars again. The the the, the engine is moving, as they would say. I think they know what they have in Obi Wan Kenobi. They're putting everything behind that show and things in the future of Star Wars. But the press is out for that. Celebrations happening next week as well. Obi Wan Kenobi's premiering, so Star Wars is in full swing once again. And again, this was a great article. Even though I kind of went through everything for you, I highly recommend reading it checking out the images and what they kind of say in their own words it truly is amazing there was also a cool video where it's kind of behind the scenes of the of the photo shoot that they did it was awesome it was, it was so so cool so again i highly recommend checking out the article whenever you have a, a chance so if you guys have checked out the article what did you think about what they said in regards to this article for star wars let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts now moving on from a galaxy far far away i want to talk about a, another universe specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm gonna be talking about the details, new details that are coming out for the first time for one of the new Marvel shows that was announced a couple of months ago in, or rather, uh, well, yeah, a couple months ago, really, to the tail end of 2021, and that, of course, is Echo. And Echo is going to be a show that showcases the world of Maya Lopez, who was introduced in the last show of 2021 from the MCU and Hawkeye, which she was awesome and Alakwa Cox who plays the character was amazing it's gonna be the first kind of deaf Native American woman to be in a superhero franchise and especially in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we got some first details in regards to her show so it seems like the show is going to be premiering sometime in 2023 they did not give a specific season or quarter they just said it'll be premiering sometime in 2023 we got a first look image of her in a brand new suit. It's kind of decked out in purple. She's got some cool pants. She's got a cool bow, like a, a cool ponytail in the back. She seems suited up and ready to go. And they also announced that filming is underway in Atlanta. And according to the story of what this show is going to be about, Echo is going to be the origin story that revisits Maya Lopez, whose ruthless behavior in New York City catches up with her in her hometown. She must face her past, reconnect with her Native American roots, and embrace the meaning of family and community if she ever hopes to move forward. And then along with the synopsis, the remaining cast was announced, and it seems to be very much set within the, the Native American culture and landscape, kind of like what a lot of MCU shows and, and movies have been doing, and especially in Phase four is showcasing new cultures and showcasing new areas that we hadn't seen before and representation. And they're going to be doing that with this show as well. As we have Chesky Spencer coming in, we have Tondu Carnell, we have Devery Jacobs, Cody Lightning, Zahim McClurm, Graham Green, excuse me. So it seems like it, it, it's a really cool, diverse cast. And then, of course, the episodes. Are going to be directed by Sydney Freeland, who's from the, the Navajo culture, and Kotorna McKenzie. And so this is very much a a representation show that is going to be moving into Echo, and, and I'm very excited to see it. 
now, again, people are wondering, well, where's Vincent D'Onofrio's name or where's Charlie Cox's name? And there have been rumors and speculation that Daredevil and Kingpin could return. It would make sense to see Kingpin return, but we'll see if that happens. It sounds like this is very much going to be about the Maya Lopez character. Again, kind of something that is singular and focused on telling a story about her and her origin story and and really kind of getting her ready for the future of the MCU. But I'm very excited to see this. I was really, really impressed by her character. She was one of my favorites in Hawkeye, so I'm excited to see getting a whole new show for her. And for Lockwood Cox, who's also disabled, this is going to be awesome as well because she had an awesome kind of a, a, a prosthetic leg that she was able to utilize. It's just it's just awesome. And and, and for Lockwood Cox too, that uh, this is her first ever major role. I mean, her what she did in Hawkeye, she never acted before anywhere. Marvel Studios casting did what they did and, and really found something that was really right for the role. And I'm excited to see what she's going to do now that she is spearheading this on her own. So we'll see where this goes. But what did you guys think about the new details in regards to the Echo Show? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And then moving on to some award season news. And even though the 94th Oscars already happened a few months ago, and of course the slap heard around the world, people are still talking about that. For people like me and, and, our, and our really good friend Jason Abdow and others that always look forward to award season, it's always about what comes next. And we're already looking forward to next year's award season. And so are the Academy members as they have now labeled and state claim to a new date for the 95th Annual Academy Awards. It will stay within the month of March after the 94th Academy Awards was on the 25th of March. The 95th annual ceremony will be taking place on March 12th of 2023. So again, kind of after two years where it's been the latest, largely because of the pandemic and in 2020 where it was the shortest coming out in early February, which by the skin of the teeth they were able to do before everything was shut down, somehow they were able to come out of that looking good and come out of, the, come out of that still being able to do their ceremony. They stay within the month of March, which makes, I think, a, a lot of sense. I think for award season, it, it, I think they like that they have a little bit of more time. I still would like it to kind of be at the tail end, the last weekend of February. That, to me, is is the perfect sweetener. The You're, you're going to have the nominations coming out and, and being announced on January 24th. So it'll be about a month or so, a little more than a month and a half before we go from the nominations to announcing the winners. So... Again, we're already getting the, the the preliminary stuff getting ready. The skeleton is already forming for the 95th Annual Academy Awards. The Cannes Film Festival is happening in the next week or two, so we're going to be hearing about a lot of films that could potentially be Oscar-worthy contenders, even though it's still early in the year. We, I mean, Parasite again is that is the that is what everyone goes to when it comes to the, to the Cannes Film Festival in terms of we never know what could happen. So maybe we have that one happening again this year. We'll see, but festival season is happening and then of course we get the big push in the beginning of the fall with Toronto with the New York Film Festival which with 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 Telluride so and Venice so we're, we're getting into it now we're, we're starting to get into the flow of the year of 2022 the year of the movies that are coming out right now so we'll see where it all lands but we've already seen the claim March 12th and we'll see where all that leads to in the next couple of months what do you guys think about March 20 or March 12th excuse me being the date for the 2020 Academy Award year. Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And then moving on to another announcement 
that happened over the last day or so. It was announced that the 27th Pixar film is set to come out on June 16th, 2023, and it will be titled Elemental. And the story behind this one is that it is a film that journeys alongside an unlikely pair, Ember and Wade, in a city where fire, water, land, and air resides, reside, residents, excuse me, live together. The fury young woman and the go with the flow guy are about to discover something elemental, how much they actually have in common. It is going to be directed by one of the directors of The Good Dinosaur that came out at around 2015 and Peter Sohan. So this is his first film kind of going at it alone. And he basically said about the story, it's based on the classic elements, fire, water, land, and air. Some elements mix with each other and some don't. What if these elements were alive? So I was happy to hear about this. I mean, I love when Pixar kind of goes out there and say, yeah, these are the movies that we're doing in the next couple of years and kind of give us something to look forward to. And it's what Pixar does well. It's, it's It sounds like it's an original story. They came out with a concept art where you see fire and water. They look really kind of cool together. It's going to be cool to see what the animation looks like. But again, when we get something new and original like this, it, it reminds me a little bit of Inside and Out meets Soul, which were both directed by Peter Doctor. But it has that kind of existential questions and story that we're gonna be getting into with this movie. And I'm very excited about that. Those have been some of Pixar's recent greatest hits in the last couple of years. And so I'm all for that. I'm very excited for Lightyear. So that's the one that I'm looking forward to right now, but always gotta look forward to the future. And it seems, excuse me, it seems like right now, at least just for right now, it seems like we're only getting one Pixar film next year. But if it's, again, if they're staking it for the summertime and we're getting back into that season where, again, fingers crossed, it stays in theaters, which I'm, I, I think it will probably next year, that usually Disney puts their best Pixar films in the summer movie slot. So it says something where they feel very confident that this film is gonna be their big breadwinner during the summer movie season. Again, I don't know if we're gonna get two films next year, if it, this is just the one, but if it's just the one it showcases the confidence that they have in it and that this one is raring to go and i'm sure we'll hear about the cast the voice cast and everything else in the next couple of months leading towards next year so what do you guys think about this new pixar film called elemental let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts. And the final two things that I want to talk about on the podcast today have to do with kind of going to television a little bit, and specifically one thing to do with television, but it has to do with one of the most, if not the most anticipated season of television returning this year, and that, of course, is Stranger Things Season 4, being broken up into two different parts. Part one set to hit on May 27th. The next part is set to come out around July 4th weekend, specifically on July 1st, and and a lot of people have been wondering, it's been a couple years, three years to be exact. It, are, are we going to get the consistency of the Stranger Things show? And apparently, according to at least the first episode from critics, it seems like we're going to be getting just that and more as the premiere for the show was on Saturday. They had the world premiere, the red carpet. So Stranger Things, the marketing campaign, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi right now, is in full effect. So everyone is looking forward to it. And these are some of the responses that we've been getting regarding Stranger Things season four, or at least from the first episode. So this comes from us from Zach. Zach Zablin, who comes from The Decider, he writes, Stranger Things season four premiere is big stakes, emotional and scarier than ever, but more than anything, it's just so good to have these characters and this show back. Get hyped because there's nothing else like this on TV. And then moving over to the one and only Steve Weintraub over at Collider, this is what he had to say 
about the premiere of Stranger Things 4. The first episode of Stranger Things 4 is, well, he has the, the thumbs up emoji. It's almost an hour and 15 minutes of setup and I loved it. Instead of rushing into the season, the Duffer brothers take their time and do a lot of character building. Not what I expected. I love when that happens. This is all I can say about Stranger Things season four until Monday, May 23rd at 12.01 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, which here on the East Coast will be 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So those are just some of the reactions for the show. But again, it seems like it it correlates to what the Duffer brothers were saying, where this is their Game of Thrones season, where it's going to be epic in scope and scale. The episodes are going to run well over an hour. The first episode, from all accounts, is over an hour and 15 minutes long, so very much a lot of setup, a lot of story they're trying to get into this season, really trying to set up the end game for what is going to be the final season with the fifth one in the next couple of years. And I think it justifies how long they took with this. Now, again, a lot of it had to do with the pandemic kind of delaying a lot of production but they had a whole year to kind of work on it and, and get into post on it. So I think a lot of people are excited about where the show is going to go. I'm looking forward to it. The, the, the stories have looked awesome. The trailers have been really, really cool. So I'm looking forward to seeing what more we can see from Stranger Things. What did you guys think about the Stranger Things season? Let me know what you think down below and leave your thoughts on what you thought about the reactions. Are you excited about it? Let me know down below. And the final thing that I want to talk about on the Sam Bissell podcast today is talking about the first trailer for the next installment in the Predator franchise called Prey. And apparently it's set 300 years before the first film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's directed by David Trottenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane. And the story says it follows Naru, a, a Komochi warrior and the latest in a long line of great hunters who has to protect her family from the Predator who seems to be hunting them down and it was just a 40 second teaser nothing that i think was that shocked a lot of people but it was cool to kind of hear the the growl and then kind of hear the lasers point out again and it's going to be very interesting because we're going to be setting this 300 years beforehand as far as i know there weren't a lot of guns it was very much bow and arrows and 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 swords and sticks and all that stuff so i'm very interested to see this tribe take on a highly advanced alien and 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 I, and I really like that so i liked kind of it seems like they're going in a different direction with this they're not even naming it predator they're just naming it prey and 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 i really like the, the spin-off that we're getting for this thing so what do you guys think about the trailer for this it's going to be premiering on hulu on august 5th which makes a lot of sense there's not a whole lot of stuff coming out other than really bullet train that weekend so in terms of streaming that could be one that gets people to stay home and watch this on their television screens. Are you looking forward to it? Let me know down below and leave your thoughts. And with that down and out of the way, that will do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I know this is a long episode. There was a lot of stuff to get into, but thank you again for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you want to check out more content or if you want to check out more episodes of my show, you can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more also, make sure to tune in on to the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on here, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson, giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. Also, along the way, make sure to check out these other amazing shows on the Podcast Solutions, such as Wrestle Ad 
Attic Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. Also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance, make sure to follow me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Bissell Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And also on Facebook at Sam Bissell. Also, make sure to check out my YouTube channel at The Sam Bissell Podcast. So once again, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on screening. <laughs> <laughs>